Hello and welcome to Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I am your host, Sarah, broken nose and all. I've got Darcy, uninjured on the other side. Well, sort of. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, am I ever really uninjured? Like, that's, you know, I don't want to... Knock on wood. Um, so for those of right? you who didn't listen to the last podcast, I tripped and fell and broke my nose last week. So recording may sound a little nasal. I apologize up front. Doing well, though. Healing nicely. Yeah. And for those of you out who out there who are like, God, she's so mean and so evil. Karma is a payback. <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> Some, sometimes I'll you take fall face my first. And not just... <laughs> but, you know, it's just no. an excuse to get my nose fixed. And I've been wanting to get it fixed for a while now. So now I'll be able to do that. Yay. Um, and yeah. at least I'll know, too, what it's going to feel like when I get my nose fixed. <laughs> Non-stop. Yeah. Anyway, um, we have got a very, very interesting topic today. And I think this is a long one, right? It's probably going to be a little bit longer than our typical episodes. Yeah. So we're going to jump right in. Instead of doing a little bit of a pre-start to the show, we'll just go ahead and jump right into this episode. Why don't you start off by telling us what got you interested in this topic to begin with? Because this is one that you've been talking about for a while and finally are getting to do. A long time. Yeah. So uh, in addition to liking true crime and all of that stuff, I am a really, really big history nerd. And specifically, I'm very interested in the Cold War. And I feel like when I was kind of growing up and going through school, we didn't really cover that much about the Cold War in history. It was kind of like we got up to World War II and it was like, oh yeah, then there was like the Korean War and Vietnam War and it was all part of this Cold War thing and then oh, now we're to, now we're like present times. So it was kind of like nothing got covered a whole, whole lot in, in depth. So when I got, got out of school and started reading on my own, that's just kind of what I drifted toward. And I really, really, really like espionage stories. So... This is one of those stories that's going to include all of this. So to kind of discuss what it is that I learned in school and why I want to get into this is we're going to be talking today about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were an American married couple and they were spying for the Soviet Union during World War II. Specifically, they were part of a group of atomic spies And these are a group of people who were involved with the building of atomic bombs and then subsequently giving that information to the Soviet Union. So for those of you out there who are watching these modern day spy shows on TV, like the the Americans Americans and that kind of stuff. Oh, my God, that show is so good. The real deal. And this is what a lot of those shows are based upon. Right. Yes. Yes, absolutely. So they, Julius and Ethel were convicted of espionage and they were sentenced to die in the electric chair. And there was major outrage because at the time it seemed like there was a lot of evidence that the Rosenbergs were not actually guilty. So it seemed like they were kind of being framed by the government. A sort of a scapegoat and, kind of a thing. Because right. That because happened this was the culture. Right. Yeah, this was the environment. This was this was right on the cusp of McCarthyism, where Senator Joseph McCarthy was saying there was like 200 people that are spying for the Soviets in the U- U.S. government and all that. Like, basically, if you had any kind of like communist tendency, you were 
at risk of losing your job and you worked in government, you did lose your job. And back then it was a modern day witch hunt, essentially. Absolutely. It, it, it was a very tense time because while we were allies with the Soviet Union during World War II, we were really only allied against fighting fascism in Nazi Germany. We were not really friendly. We just kind of had to work together to beat Nazi Germany. And then it was like, all bets are off. We defeated Nazi Germany. Now we can go back to not liking each other, not trusting each other. So that's kind of the environment. Right. It was one of those situations where it's like, keep your friends close and your enemies closer or that kind of a thing. So that we exactly. can keep an eye on them. Yes. So like I said, there was a whole lot of question about whether or not they actually were guilty and they were actually executed in the electric chair uh, in 1953. And questions always lingered about whether or not they were guilty all the way up to, you know, at least when I was in eighth grade in 1998. I remember very specifically learning that um, that many people still believe they were innocent. So that's why I want to talk about this today. And so let's get into the true story of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Julius Rosenberg was born the youngest of five to Polish immigrants in 1918 in New York. And Julius was indoctrinated in communism in high school. He donated to the campaign to free a labor radical who was in prison out on the West Coast. And that was kind of his indoctrination. And that's when he really got into um, the idea of socialism and communism and, and that ideology. And then from there... He began joining picket lines against department stores and for the Scottsboro Boys. And the Scottsboro Boys were a group of five young black men who were accused of rape by two white women in Alabama. They were falsely accused, and it was the book that kind of inspired To Kill a Mockingbird, if you read that in school. I did. Yeah, so it's a phenomenal book. But um, So that's kind of his. He's He's very into this idea of... Everybody should be equal, and obviously, if you know anything, you know that America was not equal racially in the United States in 1935, right? So that's kind of what we're talking about Not racially, not economically, not socially. Like, there was still a a major, major way to go, long way to go. Totally. But anyway. Yeah. So after Julius graduated from high school, he enrolled in the City College of New York with their School of Technology because he was going to study electrical engineering. So clearly this guy was smart. He wasn't. Oh, yeah. Very smart. Very, very intelligent man. Yeah. And while he was in college, he created an affiliate of the Young Communist League with some of his classmates. Now, this was not illegal. This is still, you know, pre-World War II. So Ethel... Ethel Greenglass was born in 1915, so she's three years older than Julius. And her father was born in Minsk, and her mother was born in Austria. And Ethel's father had a son from a previous marriage, and then Ethel would be the oldest sister of brothers Bernie and David. And the Greenglasses were ethnically Jewish, but they weren't particularly religious. So if you don't know, Jewish is um, an ethnicity as well as a religion. But they did consider themselves democratic socialists. So not quite communist, but pretty far to the left. And David Greenglass, Ethel's younger brother, was particularly curious. And he would spend time in their father's machine shop learning to build and take apart all kinds of equipment. And Ethel was an aspiring actress. 
But when that career didn't work out, she took some secretarial coursework and began working in the garment district. And now this is the time of the Great Depression. So it started in 1929. And a lot of people are turning away from capitalism. Right. So like you have this Great Depression and people are like, well, clearly capitalism doesn't work. Communism is what they think is thriving in the so- uh, Soviet Union. They had their revolution in 1917 and all the propaganda coming out of the Soviet Union is like, everybody's equal. This is great. We love it. Millions of people are definitely not dying at the hands of Stalin kind of thing. Right. Well, you have this great divide, um, too, between the classes during that time period where there was the upper class and there was the lower class. There was no middle class in this country. And then when you have something like the Great Depression that comes in the middle of that, that widens the gap between the upper and the lower class even more. Yep. And so people just become very unhappy and very ready for change. And that's when you often have an increase in things like socialism and things Mm -hmm. of that nature. So. And, and I'm not going to make a comment about any of the ideologies. I'm just kind of trying to explain how we, culturally it was not uncommon for people to be moving away from capitalism. And the other two options out there were communism and fascism. That's kind of right. where we are. Got it. And so, so Ethel, she began to get involved with local unions and she would organize strikes and she actually got herself fired from her job for joining a union because that was not protected back then. Yeah, back then it, you were a persona non grata if you joined the union. Yeah. Like you could expect to be harassed, sometimes violently, if you were a union Yeah, you're, and your job was not secure. You could get fired for joining the union. You could get fired there for were no anything or back anything like then. that. Like just looking yeah. at someone the yep. wrong way. It was very, very unprotected right. in the workplace at that time. Right. So it turns out Ethel really liked working with the unions and she actually started performing at picket lines and like singing and all the stuff and like performing at these sit-ins. And she was singing at a union event in 1936 when she met Julius. So he's like, hey, check out this hot little mama. Basically, he's like she meets him and and he's like, look at this beautiful communist woman. She has an amazing voice. Like we're we're into the same thing. So they want to get married. But her parents basically insist that they wait until Julius graduated from college because they're like, you know what? You want to be a communist? That's cool. We still live in America. You still need to be able to provide for your wife, our daughter. So you're going to have to wait until you graduate college and get a job. Right. So they were very wise in that regard. So Ethel would end up kind of helping to type Julius's papers and she actually would persuade him to stay in school to graduate because he wanted to drop out and like join all these different organizations and like he was gung-ho against fascism and he was very ideological but she was like no you need to stay in school you need to graduate right yeah she kept him grounded yes so inspired by ethel and julius david greenglass who is ethel's youngest brother joined the young communist league when he was 16 and he would also follow in Julius's footsteps by studying engineering in college. And Julius actually gave him some of his old engineering textbooks in addition to like books and pamphlets on communism and everything. So he basically just looked up to Julius as like, this guy is a mentor to me. He is kind of guiding me through school. I want to do the same thing as him. I want to be a communist like him. I want to be like Julius. So it's an ultimate but, hero worship. Totally. And while... David was really smart. He wasn't a good student. He was not as intelligent as Julius. Yeah. Well, he was, but he just was really lazy. Like, he wouldn't, like, he was not really good at, like, the 
being in the Young Communist League because, like, they got up in the morning and, like, he didn't want to get up and go to meetings in the morning. So it was, like, stuff like that. Hashtag me too. he didn't go to his classes. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, he didn't go to his classes and he failed all of his classes in the first semester of college. And he had to drop out. That's a bummer. Okay. So... In 1940, Ethel got a job as a clerk with the U.S. Census Bureau, and the Rosenbergs pick up and move to Washington, D.C. And Julius was about to get a job as a junior engineer for the Army Signal Corps. He was going to be inspecting electrical equipment for defense contractors. Hmm. But before he could start this job, which actually was back in New York, a background check into Ethel uncovered her communist leanings. And because now we're in 1940, where we have questions about communism, there's a war going on in Europe, the U.S. isn't involved yet, but if you're not all in for America and what we stand for, we don't like you. So let's just make it clear, like back then during this period of time, even a small, like there were people everywhere that were looking for things like this. So if you participated Mm -hmm. in, went to rallies, signed up for you know, were around, were associated with the Communist Party in any way, shape, or form, you could get in trouble. You could be looked passed over for a job. There were a lot of different things, ramifications right. to being involved with that. And I think initially people joined these organizations or participated with rallies and things like that because they didn't think there would be a long-term impact of it or there would be any consequences down the road. They were, they're never in the history of this country, unless you look back to like the witch trials and, and very, very early history, had we had situations like that where things could escalate to the point where you would be prevented from getting a job or going certain places right. because of your political leanings. Right, and... And just kind of like a little tiny, tiny, tiny dip our toe into communism. The whole idea of communism and why it attracted so many people, you have the economic component of we just had this Wall Street crash. People are homeless. People are poor. We don't have any jobs. We don't have any money. You also have the communists coming along and saying, look, in the Soviet Union, we treat everybody the same. Black, white, man, woman, everybody's equal here. And that really appealed to a lot of people that were wanting change in the States. But... At the root of communism and the root of Marxism, Karl Marx, who like wrote the Communist Manifesto and all this stuff, is revolution. Right. And so why the U.S. government didn't like communists is because they're thinking, hey, this happened in Russia, where they completely overthrew their government and, by the way, killed the entire imperial family. We don't want Executed. them to overthrow <laughs> our government. So, like, you can't have communism without, like, you can't vote revolution communism into revolution. power. Yeah. Exactly. You can't you can't vote communism into power. That's more socialism. So you have to overthrow a government to kind of make a communist state. And that's why. And it's usually a violent it became overthrow. very. Exactly. And that's why it became very scary, dangerous to yeah. be involved with the Communist Party as we're getting into World War Two. What's interesting, though, is in framed and putting this in today's terms and today's there are Mm -hmm. many people again that are in the same situation that are now looking towards communism and socialism and and you're finding a lot of the same sorts of leanings and developments within this country so it's interesting the juxtaposition between current times and this Mm -hmm. time in history 
Well, and this is why I read history so much is because things like this are cyclical. So like, yeah, you we do have an economic crisis right now. And then people are turning to socialism and the ideas of communism because it's a very ideological way to be. And yeah, it sounds great. In concept. But in practice, <laughs> but in we've practice, already no. seen what happens in practice where there's corruption and all of this stuff at an extremely violent, you know. Well, you get to, into a situation where there are a certain number of people that have absolute power. And you know mm-hmm. that from historic leanings and historic reports that absolute power corrupts absolutely. So mm-hmm. it puts us into a situation where I don't think a lot of people understand the consequences of a full embracing of a communist or um, Marxist type of a leaning mm-hmm. or a socialist even. Right. Right. And, and I think that that's one, like, like I said, that's why I read history because I like to have this, context of what how this plays out you know because and if you look at china and russia there is a lot of corruption and there are people at the very top who are extremely extremely wealthy you are really not getting away and creating a situation where the men the wealth is distributed among the masses yes the masses have some form of security but there's always going to be a pyramid type structure where at the top there's some people in power with money wealth and extreme power that are Mm -hmm. controlling everything you don't get away from that because you get into communism or socialism it's still there it's even more common to have that corruption and to have that group of people at the top that are taking more wealth than is their fair share and people just don't seem to understand that when they think about socialism and communism they don't and so and and to kind of dive back into the rosenberg story in 1940 because there was such repression of media coming out of the soviet union we don't know about stalin's purges we don't know about all of these things that all these ways people are dying we don't know about the famines we don't know about all of this so it sounds great because we're reading their state media it would be like yeah it would be like reading everything that comes out of north korea and being like sounds great let's go like that would be kind of like the equivalent today and not understanding what's going on underneath the surface (laughs) it looks great on the surface but beneath there's some dark waters brewing yes and so because Ethel had been involved with communism, Julius was actually called to a loyalty hearing, which also was very common back then. And he was actually able to convince the army that Ethel's political beliefs had no influence on him. And like Ethel was her own person and she's allowed to have her own beliefs. And that doesn't mean that I don't have my beliefs and that we don't disagree. I'm not influenced by that, essentially. Yeah. But like, when you think about it, in 1940, the fact that he was so progressive about his wife being her own separate person probably should have been a tip off. But right. (laughs) But to me, (laughs) it's starting to lay the groundwork that Julius is an extremely persuasive and sort of a manipulative person that it has the ability to convince people of whatever he wants to convince them of. That is the first kind of red flag there. Well, yeah. So, so as a result of like his being persuasive, he was able to keep his job and wait, I thought he was up for the job. So he was able to get the job. He, yeah, he was able to get this job. Like he was hired and then they did the background check and then it was like, Whoa, Ethel, what? And so it was kind of like that. Right. So the fact that Julia's, also had joined the Communist Party just a year prior in 1939, apparently never came up in his background check, which is kind of weird. That's so crazy that she would come up, but not him. Right. And I don't know if maybe it was like because she had been in the in like the Communist Party for longer. I'm not sure. But anyway, by 1942, they're back in New York. Julius is making pretty good money and they're actually able to move out of Ethel's parents house and they buy their own apartment. 
and in, in New York, in in New York, in Manhattan. So that's pricey. Yeah, they're making some cash. And and just one year later, their first son Michael was born. They would have two children, Michael and Robert. And so, meanwhile, while that's happening, David got married to his childhood sweetheart Ruth. And was in and out of work, mostly due to his bad temper and his lackadaisical attitude. And, like, the boss would be like, hey, you need to be here at 8 a.m. And he'd be like, no, nah, I'm going to show up at 9. And they're like, well, that you're going to get fired. So, like, kind of that kind of stuff. And so he decided that he wanted a raise at his current job. And because he had a job, that got him a draft deferment. And so David is like, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to threaten to enlist. And if you want to keep me on, you need to give me more money. Wow. Well, this plan went ahead and backfired. So his boss let him go. And because he had tried to enlist, he no longer has the draft deferment. So he actually gets drafted into the Army as a machinist. And he's going to get stationed all over the country. Uh, But the most important work that he did for the purposes of our conversation today were his posts at Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Los Alamos, New Mexico. Which are so, nuclear sites, right? Yes. Yep. So the Manhattan Project was the U.S.'s secret project to build the atomic bomb. And most people think this all happened in Los Alamos, but actually there were plants all over the country that were involved in like all different parts of the project because this way it allowed the government to have multiple people work, people working toward the same goal without them actually knowing what that goal was. So you could have a machinist working on building something, but not know it's going to be for an atomic bomb, right? Like, they're, they're not, well, not all just J. That, Robert Oppenheimers. But you don't want to have all your stuff in one spot. So if somebody came and bombed the area, mm-hmm. you would not get rid of or lose all of your information, right. all of your people that are working. You, you They'd have right. to bomb 10 or 15 different places to get rid of the people that were working on this. So it's a exactly. protective thing as well. Yes. So in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is near Knoxville, scientists were actually creating plutonium for enriched uranium. And the plutonium is what's going to be used in the second nuclear bomb that was detonated over Nagasaki in 1945. So Los Alamos was the headquarters of the Manhattan Project. And this is where most of the experimental science and construction of the bombs took place. And given the secrecy of the projects at these two bases, you might be wondering how it is that David Greenglass was able to get the security clearance to work there. David Greenglass. David, the yeah. The lazy one. <laughs> and the simplest answer is he lied. So when filling out forms for the background check, he just simply neglected to include the fact that he had joined the Young Communist League as a teenager. Wow. And there was also the fact that as the war carried on and the pressure to create the bomb increased... The army was less and less stringent in their background checks. Oh, yeah. And he probably also slipped through the cracks because they need bodies. Yeah. So to find qualified people, they were kind of willing to maybe cut, lower cut some of their some standards. Right. Interesting. So how do all these people go from being just communists to being Soviet spies? Okay. So right now they're just like, we like communism. But how do we actually get them to steal America's secrets and give them to the Soviet Union? So the first thing that happened is a friend from Julius's student movement days who happened to work as a talent spotter for the KGB oh, introduced him to a KGB agent. 
who then carefully talked with him, kind of gauging his interest in communism and the Soviet Union. How do you feel about communism? Do you think America should be supporting the Soviet Union during these times? Do you think they should be like sharing information back and forth between the countries right now? Kind of Uh thing. And when this KGB agent found out that Julius was a supporter who worked with the Army Signal Corps, well, then he's going to get passed off to another KGB agent who is running an operation to infiltrate the Manhattan Project. I'm sure they were everywhere, these potential people oh. that were trying to, to infiltrate. I'm sure it was a common thing. Oh, yeah. Like, we think about it now, and we think about the security that we have now and how, how challenging it is for spies to interact within our government and within our programs, but... I think that um, without the the things that we have now, the security measures that we have now, I'm sure that there were people everywhere who were trying to get in and spy and, and make get information in that way. Yeah, I mean, we'll kind of get into a little bit of that here in a little bit. But um, anyway, so, so yeah, so he's passed off to another KGB agent who is trying to infiltrate the Manhattan Project. And now the second KGB agent met with Julius and introduced him to a Soviet diplomat. And over the next few days, this diplomat meets with Julius to kind of scout him. And ultimately, he drops the bait. So the diplomat complains that, like, if America really is an ally of the Soviet Union, like they say they are, they should be sharing all of their technological advances. It's not fair they're making all of these advances and, like, we have to be fighting over on the Eastern Front with just our weapons, our tanks, and our guns. And what's interesting is much of this information was coming from scientists that had come out of Nazi Germany. So mm-hmm. they weren't really American scientists that were creating the Manhattan Project. There were a lot of German scientists that had escaped the Nazi regime that were creating the nuclear program for the U.S., Yes. So it's kind the, of ironic. The, the theoretical science behind nuclear fission... Um, for weapons actually did start in Germany. And then when Hitler took over, all of these scientists escaped and they went to England and they went to America and they also went to the Soviet Union. Interesting. Um, Side note. Yeah. So, yeah. So Julius takes the bait and he responds and says, I find it unfair that you should be fighting the common enemy alone. If I can do anything to help you, you can count on me. And just like that, Julius is now committed spy and he's given the codename Liberal. And over the next few years, Liberal was regularly meeting with his handler, passing over over between 600 and 1,000 pages of top secret technical documents each time. Each time he met with his handler, just 600 to 1,000 pages of documents. Get how ethically someone could think that that was okay. You you know well, that it's wrong, right? You know it's you know it's wrong in that you're doing something that America doesn't want you to do. Yeah, but it's dishonesty but, at the very core of it. You know you're not supposed yes. to do this. You've been told not to do it. It has nothing to do, I think, at a certain level with political leanings. It's ethically wrong, and it's you're not supposed to do that. But a lot of people also felt at the time that it's ethically wrong that America isn't sharing this information with their allies. So the ends justifies the means. That's what that's what we're getting around to, yeah. So not only was Julius passing along information, but he was also recruiting his own network of spies, mostly made up of college buddies from his City College of New York days. And these guys were just eating it up and like, yeah, we're on board. Let's do this. 
yeah, I mean, he had a group of communist friends and he went to a technical college. And so he had a lot of friends in well-placed jobs. Can you imagine what it was like back then? Give him his information. Like what it was. Oh, I, ugh, I, I just, I can't even. I've made the joke that like, if you went to CCNY in the 30s, that you should probably just be investigated. Like, I mean, everybody, it seems like everybody that went to CCNY in the 30s ended up being a spy. But anyway, so... In addition to his college friends, he also recruited Ruth and David Greenglass, who by now was working out in New Mexico at Los Alamos. So Julius first asked Ruth about her feelings toward the Soviet Union and if she would be willing to help. And he explained that he had some connections with people interested in supplying the Soviet Union with technical information that it couldn't get through regular, i.e. legal, channels and wanted her to ask David some questions about where he worked. So, like, when it first starts, these questions are pretty simple. It's like, how many people work there? What part of the project has already started? And, like, were there any difficulties? And how are you solving these difficulties? What's, what are some of the names of scientists that work there? So it kind of all seems very surface level at the right. beginning. That's how it always so starts. So innocent. And people and then, aren't threatened immediately. It's just kind of like yeah. putting the, the lobster or the frog in the pot of water. If you turn it up very right. slowly, they won't know they're boiling to death. <laughs> right. So then Ethel kind of chimes in and says that Ruth needs to be very careful when she's talking to David about all of this stuff because, you know, you shouldn't engage in any kind of public political discussions because you don't want to arouse suspicion. And on Ruth's next visit to New Mexico, she carried these messages to David, who responded that he was more than willing to help. And by the end of 1944, David was spying for the Soviet Union under the alias Caliber, and Ruth was acting as his courier under the name Osa. So, to me, so, it seems as though the government of the U.S. during this time period had a little bit of responsibility in this themselves. Because it just seems like there these spy-type situations are everywhere, and there's a lot of people that are doing it, and it seems like it's really not that difficult to become a spy. So why is the government not catching on to this a lot sooner? You know what I mean? So it's like, take a little bit of responsibility yes. for your lackadaisical attitude yourself, because, number one, it's really easy for these people to get involved with this, and number two, it seems pretty easy for them to take information out, and the government isn't really looking into it. There's a naivety that um, comes into it, and we're kind of going to get into that in a little bit, again, in like the little part two section. So uh, let's see. So by July 1945, the U.S. had successfully assembled two atomic bombs. One used the nuclear fission of uranium. This is Little Boy. The other one was an implosion type bomb that used plutonium, and this is Fat Man. David worked on the Fat Man project and had been passing information about this bomb to the Soviets. And in August of 1945, these bombs would be dropped on Hiroshima, that was Little Boy, and Nagasaki, that was Fat Man. And this led to the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War. So, to answer your question, the U.S. learned toward the end of, of the war that the Soviets were infiltrating the government, military, and defense contractors. The first warning was when a KGB clerk defected in Canada, and he informed the Canadians that the KGB was active in Canada. The second was when an American courier turned herself in to the FBI in 1945. Her name was Elizabeth Bentley. She had begun spying for the Soviet Union in 1938, and when her handler died, she actually ended up taking over his network. So she gave herself up. She didn't even get caught. Yes. She became disillusioned with the Communist Party, 
and she walked into the FBI in November of 1945 and named almost 150 people who were working for the Soviet Dang, Union. Dang, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. So things first started to unravel with the identification of a scientist named Klaus Fuchs. And he had been granted British citizenship to work on the atomic project. He was originally German. <laughs> yeah, it is British citizenship. So I'm going to hold off on how it is that he's identified as a spy for right now. But he had made contact with the Soviets in the early 1940s while he was still in England. He proposed that he pass along atomic secrets to the USSR, who again, remember, they were our ally in the war. And by 1944, Fuchs was working out in Los Alamos on both the Fat Man and Little Boy projects, as well as the hydrogen bomb. Now, we didn't develop the hydrogen bomb until after the war, and we've never used it. But it, it is significantly more powerful than the bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Mm-hmm. So after the war, Fuchs is back in England, and the U.S. comes to the British intelligence with their concerns that... He is a Soviet spy. So MI5 brings him in and they interrogate him and he confesses. He says, yes, I was passing secrets to the Soviets. I worked with a courier named Harry Gold. Okay. Mm -hmm. Harry Gold is a chemist in Philadelphia and he served as a courier for many of the agents in this spy ring. After he was identified by Klaus Fuchs, the FBI interrogated him. And he then confesses to acting as a courier, not only for Fuchs, but for David Greenglass. Oh. And after the press reported that Harry Gold had been arrested, David and Ruth Greenglass woke up that morning to Julius Rosenberg pounding on their front door. He holds up the front page showing that Gold had been arrested and Julius hands David $1,000 and says, you have to get out of here. You have to go to Mexico City. When you get to Mexico City, you're going to contact the Soviet embassy, tell them who you are, and they're going to whisk you away to Prague. And when you get to Prague, that's you're in communist territory. So when you get to Prague, they're going to take you to the Soviet Union. But you got to go. You have to escape. Take your kids and you got to get out of here. OK, so why didn't they leave, too? So why didn't Julius and yeah. Ethel? Because they knew that Harry Gold could identify David Greenglass, but not... So if David Greenglass leaves, there's nobody to identify Julius. Okay. You follow me? Yep. So David and Ruth would later say they really didn't have any intention of leaving. They were just kind of placating Julius because he was very frantic and freaking out. Did they not freaking out. realize the threat? I don't... I think they just, they didn't really, they, they, they wanted to give the Soviets secrets. They were sympathetic, but they didn't actually want to live there. Oh. They wanted to, like, <laughs> kind of go off the grid. They they actually tried to go off to, like, a, a off-the-grid retreat in the Catskill Mountains. Oh, jeez. Um, really? Yeah. So, really? like... Yeah. So, like, they didn't... <laughs> Clearly, they, they were the smarter part of the family. Yeah. I mean, it's... They're communists who don't... Who want to live and enjoy America. You know what I mean? Like, they want to be ideological communists. They don't want to be practicing communists. They just want to punch them in the face. So Sorry, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> so within a few days, the FBI visits David Greenglass at his home. And after having been there for less than 15 minutes, 
David had signed a consent allowing the agents to search his apartment and take any documents that they deemed important. David just seems like a complete dumbass. Is it just me? I, like, I read this in the book and I was like, I don't even have to be a bad criminal to tell you not to do this. Don't do that. So I have to say, like, like I heard about Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, like, in history class and, like, mm-hmm. looked into it a little bit, but I never really got this much into detail. So it's, like, it's really interesting to hear the story kind of through as a fresh... It's crazy, set, in, right? ...through a fresh set of eyes, but go ahead. Yeah. So uh, you don't just let somebody take whatever they deem important. Like, there's the reason that search warrants are so specific. They have to be, like, they have to state what they're looking for going in. They can't just be like, that looks important. Right. I'm going to go ahead and take that. But I don't think that people understood the law in that sort of a way back then. I mean, they still don't understand that now. I think nine people out of ten are going to well, do the same thing now. They're not going to understand their rights, and they're not going to understand what a search warrant is and what they're sure. entitled to. Um, Julius understood it, though. But, but, but we're not there yet. Yeah, so, so he just basically lets them take whatever it is they want. They're just like, oh, this looks important. I'm going to go ahead and take that. So... The FBI then says to him, look, this is just going to be a lot easier if we can just take you downtown. You're not going to have the kids running around the house and all this stuff. It's just going to be a lot calmer. So he agrees to go downtown. And that night, he confessed. Oh, my God. He says, yes, I stole secrets. Um, I passed along drawings of, like, an explosive lens for the plutonium bomb. I passed along a drawing of of the atomic bomb. I did all this stuff. I gave it to Julius. This is all on Julius now. He was stupid enough to recruit this guy who clearly doesn't have two brain cells to put together inside of his big old noggin. I mean, come on. But he's the access. He he works at Los Angeles. I mean, he worked on the bomb. So, but I guess he's the access. Many of these programs take someone who's not that bright to be able to get them the stuff that they need, right? Yeah, I mean, he wasn't the theoretical physicist. It's not like he was working hand in hand with J. Robert Oppenheimer. He was a machinist. They would draw something and they would come up with the dimensions and they would say, take it to the machinist shop and he would make it for him. That's all he did. But he also, they weren't exactly super diligent about security. Like, you you know, not for those guys. well, it's compartmentalized. Like, you're not supposed to talk about certain things outside of your compartment. So, like, like I mean physical compartment. Like, you're in one area of, of like, a lab. You you talk about that only, and you don't talk about that outside of the area. But that, that a lot of people, you know, when you get people together, they talk, and they don't, they're not diligent about where they are when they're talking about things. He overheard things, and he would then report that. So, in addition to taking stuff, in addition to drawing pictures, he then also reported what he overheard from the scientists. So he was able to give a pretty good bit of information. But um, so he he says, yes, I've been passing all this stuff to Julius. I did and it. I did Ruth, everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Me. And Ruth was kind of the courier. She passed messages between me and David when she would come from New York to New Mexico. But he also says Julius is a ringleader of a spy ring and it is composed of scientists and engineers. So. Nobody knows who Julius Rosenberg is. Like, the FBI does not know who he is at this point. And so they have this person, and now they have this David Greenglass guy saying, Julius is the ringleader. And they're okay. like, who's Julius? Yeah. So now they bring in Julius and Ruth. Julius denies everything. He, like, they say, can we search your apartment? And he says, not Wait, they bring in Julius and Ethel? No, they bring in Julius and Ruth. So they bring in David's wife and Julius. Yes. Julius denies everything. 
Ruth immediately confesses. Oh my god. Seriously. <laughs> Ruth confesses that she did, in fact, pass messages to David and that Ethel had been in the room when all of this was going on. So I'd be like, I don't know her. <laughs> I have no idea who this woman is. <laughs> well, they're they're brother and sister-in-law. But I don't know her. <laughs> I don't know her. <laughs> you can't say you don't know. Yeah. So while the FBI felt that they had enough to arrest Julius, none of this was enough to arrest Ethel. Right. So they convene a grand jury, and Ethel is called in as a witness, and she repeatedly pleaded the fifth to every question that she was asked. Well, it's not just that, but and she should have they, spousal immunity as well. I'm not sure when that came into play. I'm not sure if that was a law in 1950. Let's look. Because I thought about that, too, when I was reading the book, but nobody mentioned it. 80. 1980? According to Cornell. Okay. So we were a ways away from the spouse immunity. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know what that is, it is essentially if your spouse is some sort of has some sort of criminal dealings, you don't have to say anything about it. You can claim that you have spousal immunity because that's your spouse. You should not be forced to testify against them in a court of law. So clearly that was not a factor in this because it did not come into law yet. But go ahead. Right. So so they convened a grand jury. Ethel pleads the fifth. They they tell her, okay, we're going to call you back, and you cannot plead the fifth, or we're going to hold you in contempt. So they call her back. Back it up for one second. Pleading the fifth for yeah. people that don't know what that means. I know people hear it all the time. What is that for people that don't know what it means? So you have the right to not incriminate yourself. So you can plead the rights afforded to you by the, by the Fifth Amendment to not make any statements that would further incriminate you. Okay. Because I know there are people listening out there that have heard that term and don't know what it means and just shake their head and nod because they've heard it so many times, but they don't know what it actually means. Now you know what it means, folks. Right. And that is your constitutional protection. And a lot of like juries, when they hear that, they kind of mean, think that means like, well, they didn't answer the question. That must mean they're hiding something. That must mean they're guilty. But like you're legally prohibited from holding something like that against them. But but this is a grand right, jury. But anyway, right. so so. They bring her back the second time. She continues to plead the fifth, and they then arrest her and hold her in contempt. Got it. Okay. So, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit espionage, along with one of Julius's supposed agents, a man named Morton Sobel, on March 6th, 1951. Okay. David and Ruth both testified at the trial that Julius had recruited David due to his work at Los Alamos. And that Ethel typed up David's notes for Julius to send to the USSR. Wow. Now, there's a reason that's the first time you're hearing me say that. Because that's the first time it's mentioned. So, Ethel's involvement. And this would actually end up being the only evidence against Ethel Rosenberg in the entire time. So, it is highly probable that Ethel was not involved in this at all. Mm -hmm. Although... Given the leanings and the political sort of an environment between these two and what they were involved in, I doubt very much that she was not involved. And that's the case that they I don't make. know that she was involved to the degree that the government claimed she was involved. But given the way the political situation was and the way espionage was and how commonplace it seems to have been with so many people involved in it, I have a hard time believing that Ethel was completely innocent in this either. 
Well, and, and that that is the argument that the state makes, right? So they say, well, it's a married couple. She also is communist. How can she not know this is going on? But this is also the same conversation you and I have when somebody's arrested for being a serial killer. And you're like, how does the wife not know? I don't know. I think this is a little bit different because she knew about the Communist Party. Uh, she knew what was going on. And she, yeah. I have a hard time believing she didn't know there was spying going on. I mean, do you think she didn't know? I know the answer, but I'm not going to okay. get there yet. <laughs> I mean, in your personal opinion, there's just no way. Um, in, in my personal opinion, well, I, 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 I can't give an opinion without like being okay. knowing. Okay. So I just, I'm just going to, but, but this is the only evidence. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to plead the fifth. This is the only evidence that they have against Ethel. And they know that at that point. Right. And so Harry Gold also testified that he worked as a, as a courier for Julius and those are the only three witnesses. Interesting. The trial lasted three weeks. And after one day of deliberation, all three were found guilty. And at the time, the punishment for espionage was either 30 years imprisonment or death. Or death. So Morton Sobel was sentenced to 30 years. And both Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were sentenced to death. That's interesting. Why did he mm-hmm. only get, why did they get death and he only got, he got 30 years? part of it was because he was an agent working for Julius um, and Julius was a spy, like a ringleader. So somehow what he did was less serious than what Julius did. That's what the judge determined at the sentencing. Interesting. So, yep. So on June 19th, 1953, it was determined that Julius would be executed first, partly because he was considered to be the more emotional one. And his cell was closer to the execution chamber, so they figured if they oh sent him first, he wouldn't have to see Ethel walk past him. Good Lord. And all the while, the FBI is waiting by the phone in case Julius or Ethel decided to cooperate and give other names. That was the deal. They could get out of this if they just decided to give other names. And they had two you young... Get out of this? So they wouldn't, they wouldn't get the death penalty? Yeah. They could have just gotten prison. If they gave other names. If they gave other names. And they had two children at home, two young boys. But obviously, neither did give names. Julius was well, led. Snitches get stitches. <laughs> well, <laughs> they ended up getting electrocuted. So Julius was led to the electrocution chair at 8.04 p.m. And he was dead two minutes later. Wow. Ethel was brought in at 8.11 p.m. And after the first round of electricity, her heart was actually still beating. Oh, my but God. she was finally declared dead after the second round at 8.16 p.m. And that is the story as far as the public knew of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg until 1996. Okay. Wow. So we're going to go back in time. Okay. And I'm going to kind of retrace the story quickly. So after the attack on Pearl Harbor, which was December 7th, 1941... U.S. Signals Intelligence Service, which was a precursor to the NSA, began collecting all foreign communications between embassies and consuls in the United States and their international counterparts. The Soviet Union was part of this secret project called Venona. But the Soviet Union was using an impenetrable coding system where a message would be received, encoded, and enciphered into a number system that could only be decoded using one-time pads. 
and the cipher clerk who enciphered the message had one sheet of this pad and Moscow Center had another. And the idea was after that sheet was used, it was burned on both sides. Okay. So because of that, their code cannot be broken. Okay. But Signal's intelligence service had filing cabinets full of coded transmitted messages, but had no idea what they said. And then... It was discovered that in the rush to produce these one-time pads during the sieges of Leningrad and Stalingrad in 1940 and 41, the Soviet Union actually started duplicating them. They would pick random pages from one-time pads and duplicate them, thinking nobody's going to find this because it's just like one out of every so many. Right. But now all of a sudden, the code that was impossible to crack suddenly became possible. Interesting. And then the U.S. got an even bigger break in 1941 when the Finnish army turned against the Soviet Union and stormed the Soviet consulate, leaving the Soviets no time to destroy their code books. The Finns obtained a partially burned code book from the KGB, which of course they shared with their new ally, the Germans, because they remember turned against the Soviet Union. But in April 1945, when American troops captured the castle that was, hurt- that was holding this German cryptographic unit, which included the KGB code book, the codebook ended up in Americans' hands and on the desk of a cryptographer named Meredith Gardner. And he was able to take this codebook along with the decrypted messages from the no longer one-time use pads. He finally began cracking the Soviet code in 1946. But remember, he's going back and like looking at messages from right. like 41. Wow, that must have been okay. a lot of information. Oh my gosh, it was... It's incredible. So uh, one of the earliest messages they decrypted revealed that one of the British scientists working at Los Alamos was a Soviet spy. It also revealed that the spy had written a scientific paper on an experimental gaseous diffusion process for refining uranium. And now they know this paper that this guy wrote. The FBI special agent named Bob Lamphere, who was also working with Meredith Gardner on this Venona project, he obtained this report from the Atomic Energy Commission and discovered the author was a man named Klaus Fuchs. Ah, Mr. Right? Klaus coming out again. Exactly. So his code name was Rust. And Meredith Gardner had also partially translated another message which said, Liberal was antenna until September 1944. Message of 27 November speaks of his wife, Ethel, 29 years old, married, five years, husband's work in the roles of meter and nil. Other messages involving liberal included messages of his recruitment of a school friend named Max Elicher. And with this information, the FBI learned that Elicher had gone to CCNY. So now they know liberal also must have gone to CCNY. Okay, wait. So this information came out when? In 96? This was in 1946. 40, no, this was when it was decoded in 46. Okay. Okay. And this is part of Project Venona. So they know that Liberal went to City College in New York. And Elicher worked with another man named, codenamed Senya, who also attended City College in New York. So now they're trying, they're starting to put together this entire spy ring. And that this is a bastion okay. of spies. Yep. And around 1948, Meredith Gardner had fully translated the message pertaining to Liberal's wife, and he wrote the following memo. Intelligence on Liberal's wife, surname that of her husband, Christian name Ethel, 29 years old, married five years, finished middle school, a a fellow countryman, meaning party employee, 
sufficiently well-developed politically, she knows about her husband's work and the roles of meter and nil in view of her delicate health does not work. Uh-huh. Okay. And another memo from a 1944 decoded message provided information that OSA had agreed to recruit Caliber and that after returning from New Mexico reported that Caliber had agreed to help the KGB. And it also provided the dates that OSA was in New Mexico and when she returned to New York and that Caliber had a week's leave around November 22nd, 1944. So this is when we pick back up with the identification of Klaus Fuchs from that paper. Mm-hmm. And his questioning by MI5. And Fuchs identifies Harry Gold, who identifies David Greenglass, who identifies Julius Rosenberg. Okay. So Ethel is clearly not as innocent as we may have thought. So while Julius denied everything during his interrogation, he did kind of absentmindedly mention that his wife's name was Ethel. All right. So now they give this information back to Bob Lanfear. And he knows that they've finally cracked it. They've identified liberal. But there's still one problem with this. There's two problems, okay. really. Venona is so secret that President Truman doesn't know about it. Wow. Okay. So they cannot take any of this to court. Because it's classified information. Because we, we can't let the Soviets know that we've cracked their code. Oh. All right. So we have all this information. We've identified these spies, but the FBI has to go do the real groundwork and catch them above ground because that's the only way we can take this to court. Problem two, the KGB only gave code names for people who were actually working as agents. If they made contact with somebody just one time or they weren't actually using them as an agent, they transmitted their, their names, their full names, all right? So if we go back to the telegram that Meredith Gardner decrypted, intelligence on liberal's wife, Christian name Ethel, 29, married five years. Okay, she knows about her husband's work and view of her delicate health does not work. So there it is in the KGB's own communication that Ethel was not an agent. That doesn't mean that she didn't know about her husband, though. She knows, yeah, they say she knows, but she's not working. She's not an working. agent. All she does, all she does is know, Yeah. If she were an agent, they would have given her yeah, a code but name. If she knows about it, she has a responsibility to report. Like she's not completely innocent in this. No, no, no. But that's not that's okay. not what I'm going to get around to. But it, when you go to the other memo, Ruth had the code name Osa. Osa has agreed to recruit Caliber, and that after turning returning from New Mexico, reported that Caliber had agreed to help the KGB. Is it possible that the the communication from the Russians came in before Ethel signed up, or? Okay. No. There's never any communication that Ethel had a code okay. name. So where did that come from? Osa is Ruth. Hmm. Osa's David's wife. Okay. So she was deemed important enough to get a code name. But she was never prosecuted. She was never prosecuted. Interesting. She was never even indicted. So she basically got away with it and they took the fall. Absolutely. But because Venona was still secret at the time, none of this information could be disclosed. So after Julius and Ethel were convicted, Bob Lanfear wrote a memo to the FBI director, who was J. Edgar Hoover, and he said that, you know, the sentence for Julius might be appropriate, 
but certainly Ethel didn't doesn't deserve to die. Wow. Well, we we all know so, how Hoover was. <laughs> well, taking taking this memo though, Hoover actually agreed. He took the memo, put his name on it, so he signed it, agreed J Edgar Hoover and sent it to the judge in New York. Unfortunately, the judge did not agree. Wow. So, what about the information that Julius passed though? Because there's a lot of talk about Okay, sure, he did pass information, but it, he didn't give them the secrets to the atomic bomb. Klaus Fuchs probably did, but there were also other agents we haven't even discussed that were not part of this ring that actually probably gave more and significant information. Hmm. But let's talk about the information that he did give. He, so the U.S. intelligence reported that the Soviets likely did not have the technology to build their own nuclear weapons until 1953. And this was kind of the prevailing belief until the Soviets tested a nuclear weapon in 1949, four years early. So North Korea, backed by China and the Soviet Union, invaded South Korea on June 25th, 1950. And a lot of people involved in the Rosenberg investigation believe that the entire Korean War might not have happened had the Soviets not had the technology to create and use their own nuclear weapons four years early. Wow. Additionally, one of the pieces that Julius passed along, something that he took from his work as an electric engineer, was a proximity fuse. All right. And this is something that basically you don't have to have a direct hit from a missile for the missile to explode. You just have to get close enough to the target for it to explode. Okay. In 1960, Gary Powers was piloting the U-2 spy plane over the Soviet Union when he was shot down by missiles. And Julius's handler later said that these missiles use the same proximity fuse that Julius stole. Wow. So if you've seen the movie Bridge of Spies, the spy that we, we captured a, a Russian spy and we traded him back for Gary Powers. So that's who that person is. He, we traded him back. But even still, there's no evidence to support the fact that Ethel was actively involved other than knowing of her husband's activities and supporting them. So all indications are that the charge against Ethel was a strategic move in order to convince Julius to confess. So she was basically a scapegoat in this whole thing. She was a, a, yep. a pawn. Yeah. And their oldest son, Michael would later say, quote, when the government said to my parents, fully cooperate, that meant put other people where you are. And that's when, in my opinion, they did what any decent person would do. They said no. And Robert, the youngest son, said, if Venona is accurate, they took her as a hostage, put a gun to her head, and said to my father, confess or we'll kill her. And then they pulled the trigger. Hmm. So... In 2008, David would admit to author Sam Roberts that his wife was actually the one who did the typing, but that Ruth had testified that Ethel was the typist, and he just assumed that Ruth wouldn't make it up. And he said, I told them my story and left Ethel out of it, but my wife put her in it. So what am I going to do? Call my wife a liar? My wife is my wife. My wife is more important to me than my sister. And she was the mother of my children. So Ruth basically threw her under the bus. Mm-hmm. Ruth, threw, Ruth threw Ethel under the bus. And David went along with it to save his wife and not his sister. And none of this was known 
until Venona was made public in 1995. Yeah, with that whole big group of documents, because mm-hmm. most of us know the government keeps certain things classified for a certain number of years, and then they become unclassified. Yep. And so there was a big group of stuff that came within the 90s from the 40s and 50s. Because mm-hmm. I believe, what, will they keep it for like 30, 40 years? It depends on what it, like, I think it depends on what it is. So usually it's like for an executive years. order the president signs. And that was when, and I mean, that was four years after the Soviet Union collapsed. So, but not only, so the interesting thing is that President Truman didn't know about the Venona decryption, but Stalin did. He knew about it because they had a spy in the government who told them about it in 1948. Wow. That's some stuff right there. So that's the story of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. So what do you think? So essentially, they were looked at for many years as just evil people because they were they were spies for the Russians. Mm-hmm. But what it turns out is that, yes, maybe Julius was, but Ethel hadn't, wasn't a spy. Yeah. So I don't think she's innocent. I don't think that... I think that she had her part in it. Mm-hmm. I don't think... Do I think they should have died for it? No. Mm-hmm. But I think that that was a different time back then. And punishment for crimes was different. And I think they were trying to teach the world a lesson, essentially. Yeah. So I did kind of want to talk about it because, you know, the lesson I remember growing up when hearing about this was that they were probably innocent. And I remember the first time I read this and thought, oh, my God, they were guilty. And then I really got into it and saw, no, Julius was guilty. Ethel only knew about it, but she wasn't willing to turn in her husband. And the hardest thing is that they they were able to leave their children. I don't know. If, if I was in her place, I don't think I would have done the same thing. I think I would have given yeah. them up. Yeah, I think, I think I would have, too. No man is worth my life. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I don't I don't think it was just just her husband. I think it was, like, the cause. I think there were a lot of things that it was kind of a principal thing. The government shouldn't be able to do this kind of a thing. And her children, up until the no-no was made public, her children would, like, petition the United States government for pardons. Right. On behalf of both Julius and Ethel. And then Venona was made public, and then they like, did Whoops, fully admit uh, that... My bad. Well, <laughs> well, they admitted that Julius was involved, but they still think that Ethel was railroaded. And I kind of see how they get there. I, Jul- Ethel knew about it. She probably supported it. But it's very clear that she was not an active agent, as she was portrayed to be. And I, I mean, I'm against the death penalty in all situations. But it, it is worth noting that after this... The United States has not executed a single person convicted of espionage since. Interesting. Um, I don't know whether I'm against the death penalty or not. I think that in this instance, I would not think that it's appropriate. Um, But I do think there are some people that are just so evil and so disgusting that putting it into their life is the best thing. But I think that's very, very, very rare when you get somebody like that. And even then, in a situation like Ted Bundy, I don't think we should have put him to death. I think I think we should yeah. have dissected his freaking brain as much as possible until he died. Natural causes. I don't think we should have put him to death. But again, yeah, that's I think just there's me. a lot to be learned. I think there's a lot to be learned there from is. people like that. There is from uh, studying their brains and studying, you know, yeah. their blood and studying their genetics and their genes and all kinds of other yeah. things. I just don't feel like putting people to death in many instances is inappropriate. Yeah. 
thing to do. And and it's not because I have a thing against the death penalty. It's more, yeah. you know, for the purposes of learning as much as we can from the people that are doing crimes. So, Yeah. And, and the thing with Julius and Ethel Rosenberg is they likely would never would have talked. They never would have talked about who their handlers were or anybody else that they were working with. That actually, that probably never would have happened. Um, but I still, I, I don't, I mean... It's a hard one, but it's a very interesting one because considering how different the story is from what is actually taught in history books. Um, you know? For me, I remember learning about this case in history class, and I was a history major in college, um, and I specialized in kind of the World War II social history. Uh-huh. So hearing about this case was a frequent and a common thing, and I, I never had a question in my mind that both of them were guilty. Um, yeah. And the thing is, I went to college in the 90s. So this whole declassification of information didn't happen until I was, you know, at the tail end of my history experience. And back then the textbooks had already been written, so they weren't changing or altering, you know, giving us alternative um, parts of history like this. So there was never a portion of the history that I studied in school that said they weren't guilty. Everything leaned towards, Mm -hmm. oh, they were guilty. They were definitely spies. They were executed for being spies. So it's interesting Mm -hmm. to hear this in this later at this later stage after information has been declassified and to see this Mm -hmm. sort of alternative twist on it and there are numerous people who are identified in the venona transcripts that never were prosecuted because that was the only evidence they had they had you know they like theodore hall he was a genius who worked at los alamos but he only gave secrets during the war, and by the time that they decrypted this um, and found his name, he was no longer active, so they couldn't collect any current information on him. Right. And he basically got away with it. And there's quite a few people that got away with it, and there's quite a few people that are still unidentified. Right. And you'd be shocked how many people are currently active spies. Yeah. I mean. Interesting. It's, it's definitely yeah. something that... I want to do other episodes on because there are some really, really interesting modern day spy cases. And the, especially mm-hmm. the guy that was poisoned with the, mm-hmm. the Russian with the gentleman. Nico. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. That I, that would be interesting to have a conversation and do a podcast about that because that's. I just have a book of his too. I haven't read it yet though. Super, super interesting. So, yep. and again, this hopefully won't be the last time that we'll talk about this sort of thing. Cause Darcy and I both have an interest in it. I think she's better equipped to, run down and and grab the the research for things like that than I am in many ways because she doesn't hesitate to um, read these books cover to cover on the topic. I just don't have the patience (laughs) to go sit down and read a book from World War II cover to cover. I did that in college (laughs) and I did it in law school and I did it in all kinds of other times in my history and I just don't have the patience for it anymore. Yeah, and actually, I'm glad you said that because I want to do. Um, I do want to acknowledge my sources here. So I I did read two books for this. Um, the first one is called "In the Enemy's House," and it is written by Howard Bloom, and it is about the Venona transcripts. It's mostly about Meredith Gardner and Bob Lampier. Okay. Um, the second one is called "The Brother: The Untold Story of the Rosenberg Case," and it is written by Sam Roberts, and that is the one that actually has David Greenglass's and Morton Sobel's confessions, where they actually admit to being Soviet spies all these years later. So go check those out. They're on Amazon, right? Yes. So go check them out if you're interested in reading a little bit more about this period in our history, which is so very interesting. And even today, we're finding out more information. And a lot of these documents are becoming declassified continuously 
And so it's interesting to sort of see from this perspective, like what's truth and what's not now that information is declassified. Yep. Awesome. Great job on the show today. Um, this is the point where we're going to say goodbye, farewell, so long. Please rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please shoot us an email. We're more than happy to address those. I know I've been promising for weeks now that we're going to get to emails. We have probably six or seven that I want to talk about maybe in the next episode. It's just we have so many fun and interesting things we want to talk about that the emails sometimes take a backseat to that. And I apologize for that. We do want to address the people that have written into the show because we love getting mail from you guys. I just want to make that clear. We love, love, love getting email from you guys. Um, Darcy, what's our social media? Yeah, we're at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So you can also find and interact with us there as well. We'll post some pictures of Julius and Ethel mm-hmm. Rosenberg and as many as we can get from this particular thing. This is super, super interesting pictures. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.